Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Shout out to Lumen Sports for sponsoring this episode. Lumen Sports is your digital headquarter for athletic performance. It's an Australian-made company that centralizes athlete management, team communications, scheduling, data visualizations, and features third-party integrations to save valuable time and elevate decision-making. Lumen is trusted by pro sports teams, colleges, high schools, and high-performance centers. Lumen is an affordable solution that seamlessly connects coaches, athletes, medical staff, and operation teams. You can download a free demo today to find out why teams around the world choose Lumen Sports. We're happy to announce that Move the Needle is no longer just podcasts, but we're also releasing programs. We've released our first program on Train Heroic, um, and it's a speed and elasticity program that includes some of the training principles that me and Mike have talked about on our solo episodes. Follow the link tree in our MTN underscore perform bio on Instagram and check out the program. Today on the show, we have Devin McConnell. Devin is the high performance director for the Arizona Coyotes. Previous to his time with the Coyotes, Devin was the director of performance science and reconditioning with the New Jersey Devils. And before coming to the NHL, Devin spent almost a decade at UMass Lowell working with their hockey program. He also co-wrote a book, Intent, a Practical Approach to Applied Sports Science for Athletic Development in 2018, for which he touches on at the end of the episode, and we've attached a link in the show notes to its Amazon page. On this episode, we cover multiple topics, getting to Arizona, getting to put his signature on a sports science department, how they've decided on what's important and what's not from a monitoring perspective, and we get into some of these specifics on training as well. As always, enjoy the episode. Well, first of all, thanks for coming on, Devin. Um, and I listened to to a podcast that you had done previously, and one of the things that you had started to talk about was uh, when you first got to, to Arizona, uh, there wasn't a ton of investment into the, the kind of the sports science side of things previous to to you coming in. And so, I think kind of the overarching question to start us off, it would be great to kind of just hear about getting to put your own signature on that initiative as you kind of build that up um, without having to worry about what were the things that were already being done and kind of how, how that has evolved um, as you've been with the, with the coyotes. Yeah, for sure. Um, That was one of the unique things about uh, that attracted me to this role. Um, It was a new role that the organization created it uh, just prior to me coming here. Um, our, Our new general manager, when he retired, he wanted to introduce sports science um, as a very broad, you know, generalization for whatever that might mean to different people. Uh, but he wanted to bring sports science into the the picture in our organization. And like you said, um, there hadn't been a lot um, done with the Coyotes in that space previously. The only, really, the only kind of technology that was used previously uh, to me being here with the the former. Uh, sort of regime was um, they had a, a team heart rate system. So they did a little bit of work with, with heart rate. Um, but that was one of the things that really enticed me uh, for this role was being able to kind of build this from scratch and build it, um, you know, kind of how I envisioned a sports science department and a high performance department um, being built sort of from the ground up um, and, and getting to kind of start that process. So it was really exciting. Uh, it was a very exciting opportunity um, at the same time that, some of the challenges around that were um, because, you know, because it was a blank slate, because nobody had done anything in the sports science area with within the organization previously, um, the people who had been here uh, previously had no sort of interaction with sports science. So there was a, a, there was, and there continues to be a big learning process around the use of, you know, technology, the use of data, um, how that fits into our, our practice, um, how that um, coincides with, you know, good coaching and clinician intuition and experience as well. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily one thing or the other, but it's a combination of the two. Now, you said when you first got there, there was really just heart rate monitors. What was your first thing, piece of sports science technology that you wanted to go out and get? Yeah, there was a number of things. So, you know, I, I was very fortunate previous to working for the Coyotes, um, I worked at, at UMass Lowell, uh, primarily with ice hockey for close to a decade. Uh, and then I worked as the director of performance science and reconditioning with the New Jersey Devils. 
um, as well. And so both of those, in both of those um, uh, places and experiences, I was able to utilize a lot of uh, technology and sports science and really uh, the, we'll probably get into the conversation around the, the collegiate setting and UMass Lowell when I was there. But, you know, one of the things that I kind of went through this process then in terms of building a, a performance department um, or a, a sports science mindset, I guess, from scratch. So we, we used a lot of technology there. And then obviously when I was with the Devils in a very direct sports science role, used a lot of technology there. So I had a pretty good framework for what I wanted to try to um, include from a technology standpoint and, and um, sort of a, um, not just the technology, but the, the, um, the process that I wanted to go about using that type of information to help drive decision-making or inform decision-making is maybe a better way to put it. So um, long story short, but some of the, the key pieces that I wanted to include right away were force plates that I have used for a long time. And um, uh, those are super helpful in a, in a number of areas. Um, I wanted to include, we wanted to include, um, uh, you know, essentially GPS or, you know, internally an LPS system. So we use catapult uh, for on ice um, monitoring, measuring. Um, and then I had experience with uh, some, some uh, equipment from 1080 motion. So the 1080 sprint and the 1080 quantum were pieces that I wanted to be able to bring in and had used previously and uh, were really uh, are instrumental in some, some of the, the training processes that we, we utilize. So that's what you wanted to bring in on the front end. Now, reflecting back on where you are now, if you only could keep one of those pieces, what would it be? Yeah, if I if I really only could uh, keep one, especially in the the um, the pro setting for me, it would be it would be catapult or some sort of external load monitoring system. That really is a uh, a key piece of equipment for us from a you know. It, the buzzword of load management, right? Uh, it allows us to um, understand the the phys physical demands of what's happening on the ice in practices. Um, you know, there's rules around in the NHL. Um, you, you can't necessarily use that equipment in games. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a, a gap there, uh, but that's league-wide. Um, but there's some some technology that the league utilizes that we're able to understand some of what goes on in the ice during games, but that'd probably be the, the main thing. Uh, not that the other tools aren't uh, really beneficial and, and have a, an important place in our program. But if I had to narrow it down to one thing, I think we can capture a lot of really useful information um, to help inform our processes with, with external load and with catapult. So I want to, I want to definitely revisit some of what you're doing with catapult with the coyotes, uh, but I want to backtrack a little bit first and, and ask about your time with the Devils and coming from UMass Lowell and going into New Jersey. I'm sure there were things that uh, you wanted to implement in New Jersey, um, having coming from the college realm. And I, I, I want to know, were there things that you did implement that as you got to Arizona, looking back, you were like, okay, these are some of the things that I missed on from a sports science initiative process in New Jersey that I know for sure that I don't, I don't have to do or, or I can streamline a little bit better as I'm now with the Coyotes in my kind of second iteration of sports science in the NHL? Honestly, it was, it's been a continuous learning process in all reality, but um, New Jersey was, was unique for me in that it was, it was actually not a super long period of time that I was there. Um, and it was uh, basically the front end of COVID. So it was cut even shorter, um, which made it not a long time calendar wise, but also somehow seemed like I was there for, for 10 years when I really wasn't. Um, but one of the things that I, I really, again, looking back, I kind of realized that I, I really learned. So we had just started to institute external load monitoring. We used a different system. We used a, a system called Connexon when I came on board in New Jersey. So that was a brand new initiative. Um, literally days after I, uh, you know, had moved there and was, was uh, on the ground, we were installing this brand new system that nobody in the organization, again, had had utilized. Um, I'd used heart rate as a monitoring tool for a long time. So the principles were similar, but a brand new technology, um, brand new process. Um, so fast forwarding to now and how I use Catapult, very similar uh, tool, um, is just much more streamlined now because of the just some of the lessons and the, the growing pains of going through 
utilizing that system in New Jersey when that was that was brand new. So I'm sure I didn't I know I didn't use it um, as effectively as as I could have uh, at the time. Um, but now, you know, you fast forward uh, a bunch of years and I think we have a, a much more streamlined process and how we use that information, how we operate the, the tools, um, what type of information we share and how that helps us again, make decisions and, and um, whether it's on the coaching side or the, the player side, um, development side, uh, all of those things. Could you take us through like a quick, I know it's not quick and there's, there's probably a lot of detail to the process um, and we can dig into the detail too. I would love to hear the finite or the, the very granular, granular details of it, but can you take us through the process that you take with your um, catapult system of like, game load, practice load, how you have that trickle down to then decision-making within your training, within practice, however it is? So the way that we kind of utilize it from sort of a big picture standpoint is we we have a, a pretty good estimate of what a, from a team level standpoint, and then we'll, we'll drill down individually, but starting at the team level, um, what a typical week looks like in terms of um, the metric that we use for for our volume metric essentially is, is player load so what is what what does a typical week look like as far as the the accumulated player load we know you know basically what that ab on an average week what that number is and so um, I think of it as almost like a debit account so um, I have a calendar uh, the staff has a calendar with all of our games outlaid um, and all of our practice opportunities and all of our off days and everything like that. And everybody would have something like that. And what we do is basically we start with our, our average total workload at the end of the week and we plug in, okay, we, we know what a typical game would be um, from our data from the American league and from some preseason stuff and some other research in the past. So we have a, an estimate of what a game is. And if we're going to have three games this week, we take that load right off the table. We've already lost, you know, whatever that's going to be 900 player load for the week. And so we know we have X amount left basically in our debit account until we're at zero. And so now we need to plan out, okay. Um, if, if we want to, if we're going to practice three times this week and have one off day, how much load can we, do we want to accumulate out of those three practices? And then out of those three practices, um, you know, we, we, we utilize in our, department um sort of a charlie francis high low conceptual model we want to either be really high and intense and drive adaptation drive development or we want to be really low and allow for recovery so we look at our practices and our games and we say okay games are high and they're going to be this much load here's our practices um is there an opportunity for one of these practices to be you know basically low moderate or high uh, volume um not a lot of times would be high volume in in uh, in season, but there's sometimes that that happens. Um, and so we basically filter out the week and say, okay, this is the, the ideal way in our opinion to divvy up training load or player load throughout the week. Um, and then we talk with our, I talk with our coaching staff and I say, okay, you know, here's, here's the, from a physiological perspective, here's the game plan that I would institute this practice. Um, I wanted to be here, uh, from a load standpoint, this practice, I want to be a little bit lower. I think this is actually a day that we should take off et cetera, et cetera. And we kind of work through that and it's never exact. And, you know, sometimes we go over and um, coach needed to do something or spend more time on power play or whatever it is. And then some days that we were going to have practice, we take off because X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's never an exact science, but that's sort of the, the general process is we kind of work backwards through each week. And then, and then we look at, you know, we kind of dig a little bit deeper and we say, okay, not necessarily week to week because our schedule is, you know, sometimes it doesn't, match up just on a seven day schedule, right? We could be, yeah. you know, 10, 10 days in a row, 12 days in a row. You have to have four days off each month in the NHL, but outside of that, it's, it's sort of up in the air. Um, so we look at, you know, planning ahead, you know, for instance, we've been home here for a long stretch, but we're about to leave um, to go to the East coast and we're going to have um, uh, two sets of back-to-backs next week. Right. So next week's going to end up being a really, really heavy week with, travel and um uh, you know heavy games and all of these things so you kind of start to factor that stuff in and you say well you know because we knew that that was coming we've been banking on a little bit extra rest so we've taken a couple extra days off now 
So our weekly load has been relatively low, but we know it's going to be relatively high moving forward. And you try to balance those things out. So that's the, that's kind of the 30,000 foot view of how we use external load from like a, a team perspective to try to just inform decision-making around practice planning. And, you know, obviously you're not going to do anything with games. Games are going to be games. Um, but you try to start to manipulate a little bit of what practice is going to look like, where it needs to be a little more intense, where it can be more intense, uh, where we need to probably back off a little bit. And then we provide those recommendations. You kind of try to touch on it a little bit. And we, we, we interviewed uh, Jesse Green, who now works for the Penguins. And, you know, we talked about when he was with the Sacramento Kings in the NBA, they looked at practice schedule. They looked at travel schedule. And they also could, if they wanted to, look at strength of schedule. It wasn't something they really used a lot because it added a lot of variables. But they said that they could use it within determining potential player load. Is that something like if you're about to go to the East Coast, it's like, hey, we're going to go, you know, play Boston on a second night, good team, big travel day. Like, does that become part of potential future workload? Or is it just like, hey, this is the travel. We're not going to worry about the fact that the team's a good team and team's not a great team, whatever it might be. Or does it come into play? Yeah, the, the travel absolutely does. I should have mentioned that in our calendar, we assi- we essentially assign player load to travel. So we look at um, we look at hours uh, hours in flight. We look at a uh, number of time zones crossed, and then we look at um, hours of sleep lost after midnight. And so we assign, and it's it's somewhat arbitrary, but we assign a certain amount of player load to those three categories. And we add that up and that gets factored into our, our weekly load. So for instance, we are traveling to Boston. Um, I think, I think the, so that's like a five hour flight for us, uh, two time zones. Uh, we don't lose any sleep cause we're leaving in the morning. Um, so I think the total player load for that ends up being essentially like a moderate practice. So I factor that in and in my weekly report and in conversations with the coaching staff, I say, Hey, you know, also to keep in mind, even though it's a travel day, we're not practicing on that day. Um, it still is going to essentially account for, uh, you know, I think it was 130 player load um, worth of brain on the players, which is essentially a, a moderate practice for us. Um, so we, we try to factor that factor that in as well. We don't look at strength of schedule really. Um, I don't know if we're that, if we're that, far down the rabbit hole yet with our, with our group, but um, we do absolutely factor in the travel and try to account for that. That's really cool. That's the first time I've ever heard of doing that, but I think that taking travel and putting it into a metric that affects everything else is, is a very productive way to do things. But one, one question I had kind of going back to the front end of that is how do you make the initial determination of an average week? Is that taken? Is that like a rolling average that changed? Cause like, I've never worked in the NHL before, but I've worked in sports that have long seasons, basketball, and typically like as you practice throughout the season, practice volume goes down a little bit. Um, I don't know if that's how that works in the NHL, but is there like a rolling average that you're using to determine like your bank account every week? Or is it like, hey, the preseason average week was this, so we're going to roll with this throughout the season? How does that work? Yeah, honestly, it's it's just been able to, it's been from looking at historical data um, and uh, over the last few years and trying to gain an understanding and you're right uh, preseason versus end of the year are going to be wildly different. Um, so there is a little bit of that sort of factored in once we, when we're in those periods, our, our preseason um, bank account essentially is going to be a little bit higher. Um, but it's, it's essentially just looking at our, our historical loads uh, over the last are um, within a, within a, a subsection of the season that we would consider um, fairly a fairly standard schedule, right? Cause like next week, like I said, where we have double back-to-backs, that's unusual. Um, even in the NHL, it's, you don't run into that a lot. It's going to be a really, really heavy week. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily use that as our barometer, but looking at a more standard, you know, three game, three practice type week where you're playing every other, um, which is fairly standard. That's probably, you know, 65 or 70% of our weeks are pretty similar to that. So it's using those types of totals um, to kind of create that that metric. I really like this. And you got my wheels turning now, so I could probably ask like 20 more questions, but I'll try to pick like the one I feel most curious about. about. But when you're looking at historical data and you're looking at like an average week, do you take into account what happened in like the outcome of that week, whether it was potential injury or 
win loss or whatever, covering the spread or whatever it may be, do you look at like, okay, maybe that average week was too much of a player load and maybe it needs to be scaled back or maybe we had more juice left that we could have given. So like, do you take into account the performance of the week of the average week in term or like as a way to determine your now new bank account that you're going to use now? Um, I don't, I haven't done that recently. I don't do that currently. Um, mostly because the reality of, of our organization is um, we've, so I've been here, this is year four. We're just coming out on the, the backside of essentially a complete rebuild where um, you know, very publicly, like we, you know, we tore everything down. We moved a lot of, uh, a lot of players. Um, we 100% have been trying to build through the draft and, and um, you know, stockpile draft picks. And, and so the last couple of years have been, have been tough. The two of the last three years, uh, my first year here under a different uh, coaching staff and um, was a little bit different. We were in the, in the race, but the last two years on purpose have been really tough. So looking at wins and losses, um, not a great barometer for that in the last couple of years, because, you know, essentially we, we were, we were not very good. Um, however, I would say uh, at the start of my sports science sort of um, foray um, early on in my time at Lowell. Um, that's exactly what I did to um, using heart rate to start to uh, understand, but then build a case for um, how to structure uh, our, our week um, to have the best opportunity for success. And it just briefly what we, what I basically was able to do really early on using um, using heart rate loads, using shrimp uh, in a similar fashion to how we use player load. Now, I was able to look at our 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 regular practice week in college hockey, which is typically for those that, that um, aren't involved in college hockey or don't know a lot about. It, you mostly play Friday, Saturday night, so you 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 practice usually uh, Monday through Thursday. Play Friday, Saturday, Sunday is usually off. Almost everybody in the in the country would be similar. Um, and what I had noticed and what didn't make sort of intuitive sense in my mind as a, you know, as a strength and conditioning coach was our, our Thursday practices tended to be very low intensity, uh, but a little bit longer. So low intensity, higher volume, you know, your typical kind of day before game sort of walk through special teams, not a lot of intensity, didn't want guys to get tired, that kind of thing. But occasionally we would have uh, for some reason, a much shorter, much higher intensity, Thursday, day before the game um, practice. And when I retrospectively went back in the summer after using heart rate for one or two years and looked at those, what I found was that when we had those short high intensity practices the day before a game, um, we averaged three out of four points on the weekend versus uh, the sort of slow, long, higher volume, but lower intensity. We were much more like 50-50. And I was able to build the case that essentially um, what made our player and back then we were using subjective questionnaires as well. Um, so I was getting information from players, those slow, long days, guys felt tired, the short, high intensity days, they didn't feel tired the next day. So I was able to sort of make the case to our coaching staff that, Hey, Thursdays should actually be real brief um, and high intensity. And we were able to even work it back to the point where we figured out the amount of load that we wanted to accumulate was essentially equal to one period of play. So our Thursday practice back then, we wanted to basically play one period of hockey. And that was where we tended to be the most successful going in. And then we started to work back, okay, then what does Wednesday look like? What should Tuesday look like? What should Monday look like? So although I'm not specifically doing that now, um, from a principal standpoint, that's exactly how the process kind of started. And the, and the thinking about sort of the tactical periodization idea of, you know, manipulating loads and volumes in practice throughout the week to gain a physiological sort of adaptation at the end of the week or wherever you're trying to compete. Um, I have a, a follow-up to that. That's maybe different from a follow-up that Hunter has, but I think we should continue to go here. And I know we were going to touch on it anyway. So I want to kind of keep going there, which is your time at UMass Lowell and kind of talking about some of the things that you started to um, kind of figure out as you were there. 
what else, if you could go back into that situation, if you just transport yourself back into that situation, what else would you try to kind of reimagine within that program? If your goal was just like, hey, I want to create this high performance model at UMass Lowell in the best way possible. Having had this experience now all over the country, go ahead. No, it's, it's, it's a great question. And it's, it's, uh, it's something I've been trying to think about, um, when you guys sent the questions over how to, I was trying to think back on that because honestly, I think that, um, I was very fortunate at UMass. I'll, I'll say that first. I was there for about nine years. Um, I was brought in, uh, by the a brand new coach when he took the job. It was very similar to this where they created a new position. They hadn't had a strength and conditioning coach. Um, or a full-time strength coach uh, ever. Um, I got to design a f- our weight room. Um, he, our our head coach, Norm Bazin, was unbelievable. A, unbelievable as a coach, but B, from a strength coach or a sports scientist perspective, it was absolutely, uh, it couldn't have been a better situation because he he completely trusted me and was bought into what we were doing and bought into training. Like it was a big piece of his program. Like, physical development was going to be a big piece. Um, and he was totally hands-off. Like he came into the weight room seven times in my nine years. Like he just totally trusted what we did and gave me full reign. Um, so by the time I, I say that to say, by the time I left Lowell after, after about nine years, I think I had been able to develop on a small scale. Cause it was, you know, in that setting, collegiate setting, your one man show a lot of times, I think we had developed a, a high performance model. We were, you know, maybe on, on a slightly lower, you know, budget level than you get to work with in, in pro sports. But um, I think we, we developed a high performance model um, in that setting. Like I said, on a smaller scale, we were, we were using force plates to profile players. We were doing um, speed development work um, all year round. We were using uh you know, gym aware, uh, to measure and monitor and, uh, modify training loads. Um, you know, we didn't have GPS, but we were using heart rate and, you know, those types of, of, uh, metrics in a similar fashion to help make similar decisions. Um, so, you know, if I went back, what are things that we do now or that I do now that, um, that I would add that, that I wasn't doing, you know, we do, um, I would add, you know, external load monitoring again, if I could, catapult is a big piece um it's very helpful in what i do now so if i could do that um and i think that at lowell i think they have catapult now um i would you know if budget weren't a concern i would add uh, a 1080 i think resisted sprinting especially on ice that's one thing that we were about to get to do uh was more a little bit more on ice speed development resisted and unresisted sprinting and that but i left um but you know so if I could add that piece in, that would, that would come along for a ride. But otherwise we were doing very similar things. Like I said, we were using force plates, uh, in training all the time. We were looking at, you know, um, uh, RSI as a, as a readiness tool, pre every lift in season. Um, you know, we were, uh, we didn't, I was the nutritionist quote unquote, but like, uh, you know, we were doing, we had a, we built a smoothie bar and we were doing, you know, post-workout, shakes and um you know smoothies and things like that so again smaller scale than you can do here where we have you know now i have a, an entire staff that works in all of these areas but i think we were i think we really had something um pretty special when we were there was it hard to leave after nine years after building all that really hard i'm sure it was. really hard um but for a number of reasons i mean one just professionally again i, I honestly think it was one of the best you know, as a hockey person, a hockey performance coach, uh, a former hockey player, like I honestly believe that was one of the best and is one of the best college hockey jobs uh, in the, that exists. Um, I, I took a lot of pride in helping to build that uh, and build that, help build that program when I was there uh, with Coach Bazin, again, coming in, you know, with him. Um, we were very successful while we were there. So it was a lot of fun. Winning's fun. Uh, and, and we had a, uh, you know, we always had a great group, um, good people there and then life wise, family wise, you know, uh, I have a young family. My kids were born there. It's close to where I went to college. Uh, it's where my wife is, is from, you know, very much if that's home, 
so leaving there was really tough uh, for sure. But, you know, my, my professional dream, my, my dream had always been to get to the NHL. So it wasn't something that I could turn down, but, but, uh, but it, it was tough. I still miss it. And I'm still close with a lot of people there. Just a quick pause in the podcast to talk about our sponsor, Protein 2.0. Protein 2.0 is the ultimate protein sports drink. It is packed with 20 grams of whey protein isolate and electrolytes. Protein 2.0 is your go-to solution for quick muscle recovery and hydration. It is available in a variety of fruit flavors like orange mango and strawberry watermelon. I probably have at least one a day here at Illinois State. Give your athletes something better for you and better tasting after their next workout. Head over to drinkprotein20.com slash needle for an exclusive offer. Just fill out your information and a rep will shoot you an email with a first time purchase offer. That's drink protein and then literally or put the number two, right? Drink protein two, the letter O.com forward slash needle. Power your athletes with protein 2.0. Oh, real quick, I just want to put a pin in the on ice speed development as a category that we need to touch before this conversation is over. But I honor you have some other follow-up, well, so go ahead and hit those first. All I was going to say was I've never been anywhere for nine years, but I've been places fraction of those that time, and it's hard to leave. So I can't imagine nine years and leaving after building something like that. But I wanted to start to transition a little bit to like the training aspect of what you do. And you mentioned how uh, you were a one-man show at UMass Lowell, at least early on. What is the structure within your department for you and then who works with and under you? Yeah. So, so my role is, so my title is a uh, uh, high performance director. So I, my role here is it, well, it's two pieces. My technical role is essentially sports scientist, right? So I manage and handle all of the, um, you know, any of the technology that we've been talking about um, and how we implement that. But then my sort of leadership role, is is to oversee our performance department, which includes um, at the NHL level two strength coaches uh, and a full time dietitian, uh, and then we have some consultants. We have a, a, a consultant um, holistic doctor that does uh, a lot of our nutritional uh, consultancy stuff and, and blood work. Uh, our American League strength coach. Um, um, I'm probably missing a couple other kind of roles. Full-time, I, I think I said full-time dietitian, which is unique in the NHL. Um, so I oversee that group. And then it's my role from that perspective is really about, um, it's it's much less uh, on the ground coaching anymore, um, on the floor coaching. Um, it's much more creating sort of the overall vision for the, for the group and the department uh, and where the performance model fits into uh, the, the NHL organization. Um, and then it's, it's really about uh, being a communication liaison to all of our different groups, whether it's sports medicine, whether it's coaching staff, whether it's management, whether it's our development staff um, that looks after our prospects, uh, our scouting department um, sort of, I, you know, I'm not the center of the wheel by any means, but if, if I'm sitting here, I'm speaking to these pieces and connecting all of these groups together to try to keep or not keep everybody but um have everybody sort of on the same page and, and communicating the same way and, and looking at um performance and uh, optimization and development uh in the same light yeah working with the kings last year i saw people that were above me in those type roles and the amount of communication and the things they had to do outside of actually training athletes was like you don't realize it until you're in that space and especially in professional sports with front office and, and sport coaches and player development coaches and all these different areas, the communication has to be tiring to say the least, but um, how do you guys, so when it comes to act, act, the actual training, are you overseeing the program? Cause I know in the NBA, the way it was kind of structured, at least with Sacramento is that there was three full-time NBA strength coaches that were just dedicated to the, the, the uh, NBA team and they kind of broke the roster down and each guy kind of had their guys and they were able to kind of tailor the program to what they felt felt was best. Do you have oversight over the program and how guys are trained or is that given to those two strength coaches that work under you? I have, I have oversight, but um, I have oversight, but I don't at this point, especially now that we've, we've been together for three years. um, I don't put my hands into the into the mixing bowl a ton 
Um, again, you know, the way I view my role is to create the framework and the structure and, uh, you know, the, the decide on what the key performance indicators are going to be and, and set some, some boundaries. Like I, I think of it as like a, uh, putting the bumpers down in a bowling alley. Um, I put the bumpers down. Okay. We're going to be in between here, but I want my coaches to have autonomy to, to be wherever inside that lane they feel best, um, about, about doing things. So, um, early on, I was probably more active and more hands-on in, um, you know, the, the training structure and programming and things like that. And now I'm, I'm very hands-off, um, as far as developing the program, that's, that's for them to do. And that's, uh, I think it's really important that, uh, you know, they're two highly experienced professional strength and conditioning coaches. They're not brand new interns. They need to have autonomy to coach and, and, and train and develop programs the way they want to. So that's, at least that's how I think of it and how we're structured. Um, you know, if, if I saw something that was just way outside, uh, my, my boundaries, then yeah, I, I, I guess I have veto power to go in and say, no, like we're not, that's not how we're going to do it. Or I want it done this way. But at this point in time, um, we're all on the same page enough and our philosophies are similar enough. And we've hopefully you know, created a vision that's, um, that's aligned enough that, that, uh, that's not necessary. Got it. Yeah. Um, one thing that you touched on in there was KPIs and that's something that I wanted to talk, talk about. Um, and it might take us to the 1080 stuff. Cause I know Mike's itching to ask you about that. Cause he's been using it. 1080 every day for the last two years. So um, let's talk about KPIs, how you how you think about developing them and then what they are for you guys, if you don't mind sharing. And then I'm sure that might that might take us into Mike's wheelhouse a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So um, the way I think of our, our key performance indicators, there's two main buckets. Um, and again, you can get into individualization and different guys and positions and and there's some nuance to it. But in general, we have two main buckets that we're trying to either develop if it's a younger player or optimize if it's a, a more veteran player. Um, and that's what we call five meters fast and hockey strong. So five meters fast is think about that as a, a acceleration. We want to be really fast and, and that'll bleed into max velocity stuff as well. But at, at the, the base level, we want to be really good accelerators. Um, hockey's a game of start, stop, um, races are won or lost, you know, basically over, over five to 10 meters. Um, so we want to be really good in that area. Um, and so we'll break down, you know, basically if you think of like a decision tree, we'll, we'll assess players and then we'll start to break down, you know, all of the reasons that we think go into being fast, go into being a good accelerator. And then on the other side of the coin, we want to be what's called what we call hockey strong, which is essentially, you know, sort of a, a, a vanilla term, but, it's it's being able to um, consistently win uh, physical battles, net front battles and uh, board battles, those two areas. And those are sort of defined by our coaching staff. Um, we want to develop players that are physically capable of doing those things um, consistently. Uh, and so again, decision tree, we start to break down, you know, what, what are the factors? What are the physiological components that we think make you quote unquote hockey strong? Um, and so we have thresholds for uh, lower body strength. We have thresholds for upper body strength. We have thresholds for um, power output. Um, uh, we have, um, you know, basically, you know, like anybody else would, we have body composition thresholds. So we have all of these things that go into it and we try to break down, you know, essentially if we pick, if we pick the, uh, the five steps fast or five meters fast category, we start to break down um, our players after we've assessed them and we say, okay, uh, are you, are you, first off, are you fast or are you not fast? And if you are fast, then we say, okay, can you be fast consistently and repeatedly? And so that goes to a different category, but if you're not fast, okay, why? And so maybe to segue a little bit, we'll, we assess that with the 1080 sprint. So we'll do on ice 40 meter sprints, uh, in camp. Um, and then we look at, uh, force and power output off of the 1080, um, and we look at our force velocity profile and we say, okay, are you quote unquote strong enough in the sprint? So do you produce high levels of force? Yes or no. Okay. Yes, you do. Great. Do you produce high levels of power? Yes or no. 
this guy? Yes, he does. Okay, so he's strong and he's powerful, but he's still not very fast the way that we define it. Then we look at our um, our force velocity profile. And we look at something called ratio of force, which is essentially how much of your propulsive force you're, you're um, producing horizontally versus vertically. And the more vertical you produce your force, you know, think of a sprinter. If they pop straight up, they're producing force vertically, but they're not really moving forward. They're going to be slow from an acceleration standpoint um, versus if you produce a lot of force horizontally, um, you're going to be faster acceleration-wise. So we would look at that and say, okay, he's strong, he's powerful, but he's still slow. If his ratio of force is telling us that he pops straight up, then we start to go down the rabbit hole there and say, well, why is that? Is this a, a lot of times it's a technical skating issue, um, but it could be an equipment issue. It could be a joint mobility issue. It could be a bunch of stuff, but a lot of times we'll factor that out and say, okay, this guy's strong. This guy's powerful. This guy doesn't skate very well. He needs to spend extra time with our skating coach as an example. Um, and we can go the opposite way and have a guy that, you know, has really good ratio of force. So he, but not good power, not good force. So he actually is pretty quick but he's going to be more of like a weight room guy. Hey, we need to get him stronger. And that, that decision tree will go down a bunch of layers and it'll start to incorporate um, more than just our on ice assessment, but then it'll break down into our off ice um, assessment with uh, a lot of, with our force plates or with our lower body strength testing. So we kind of have all of these different sort of um, branches off of this decision tree to get down to the bottom, to start to basically identify, okay, what is the low hanging fruit in this category for this, this player. And then within our, within our global training program, we'll start to bucket that each player into one of several buckets. And they'll essentially do the same program as everyone else, except it'll be a little bit more nuanced for force or for power, or, you know, maybe if it's like a, like I mentioned earlier, if we identify that it's more of a, maybe a joint mobility limitation issue, then maybe we bring our physical therapist in and he's creating a, a specialized routine program, pre-practice routine for that specific individual for that area. So that's how we sort of break down, um, break down our key performance indicators from a big picture sort of, are you fast and are you strong? And then if not in either of those areas, why? Like what is the thing that, that needs to be focused on? Um, and that's how we start to make some of those, those decisions. I have a handful of follow-ups. Uh, I'm not sure where to start, uh, but I'll start. I want to start with the hockey strong one. Um, and obviously hockey high level contact export in a lot of other contact sports, you always see stuff about like contact prep, right? That seems like a, like a pretty big buzzword in other contact sports, football contact prep, especially like in college football, where, you're limited in terms of how much time you can actually have pads on, whatever. Um, what is the process like in in hockey with that kind of same mindset of contact prep or wanting to win the physical battle, win win along the boards? Yeah, that's a great question, and honestly, it's probably something that we can we can do a better job of just in general in hockey. I, I think um, the the process is in the late off season when players are getting on the ice more often. And basically the, the way it works in the NHL is we don't have any mandatory contact with our players at all during from basically the, the last game until the first day of training camp. Um, they can voluntarily train with us. Uh, they can voluntarily skate with our skills or skating coaches, but that's all like, that's all voluntary. And so, um, we'll have a handful of players that, that live here or come here. Prospects are a little different. so we'll have a lot of prospects in the summer, but basically our NHL players are more or less gone and away during the off season. And so we communicate with them and we provide programming and, and work with their strength coaches um, when they're interested in that, but we don't have a lot of say in what they do, but usually players come back into town somewhere between one to four weeks before training camp. And basically the team comes back a little bit early, usually um, at least in our setting. And um, they'll start to train. They'll start to skate every day together um, and get prepared for training camp. 
So during that on ice period, we don't, I would say we don't do any real contact prep off ice, which again, I think maybe is something that, that is a, is a gap, but on ice, um, usually players will start to sort of self-incorporate some of that, especially players that play a more physical game because they understand players understand you can't get in hockey shape unless you're playing hockey. It just, it, it's just different. The physical demands, skating, the contact and collision. So usually on the ice, they will start to incorporate drills on their own um, to start to work on some of those, you know, just physical, I don't want to say battles in pre-training camp, but, you know, physical interactions along the boards and things like that to start to incorporate that. But I don't know that it's as structured or planned as it could be. Um, Part of that, again, is because we don't, we technically don't have any say over what they do on the ice um, during that period. Uh, we can, we can, you know, talk to them about it and inform them. Um, but those things have to be basically, you know, it's essentially a captain's practice. They have to be done on their own. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and then my second follow-up and I, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this is, is what you kind of talked about with some of the speed development stuff on ice. Um, so I've, I've used 1080 a bunch and I've never used it with hockey players on ice. But theoretically, I've like thought about it. like, what would it look like if you were to? And one of the things I think about is like, especially with resisted sprinting on ice is like, it feels almost counterintuitive because it's like, okay, well, acceleration while sprint or acceleration in hockey, really quick contact times uh, as you take steps, as you get up to speed, longer contact times, more of like a push. Whereas like resisted sprinting, um, I feel like you would, I don't know. I just, it just feels, feels odd in my head, theoretically. Whereas like I thought about um, how the 1080 has like a variable resistance setting where you can go from like heavy to light or you can go like light to heavy. I'm like, maybe with hockey, you'd go like light to heavy with resistance to let them to keep the speed, right? It's all like theoretical in my head. Can you just talk about the use of resisted sprinting on ice? What are some of the things that you guys do? Um, some of the protocols you might use if you kind of abide by certain like velocity decrements um, or how you just kind of, organize that yeah um so i think the first thing to think about is that um the skating stride at max velocity is very very different from running stride at max velocity those two things are very very different it's in hockey it's a very um transverse and frontal plane action obviously uh, in land-based sprinting it's not um, you mentioned that the ground contacts or ice contacts at higher speeds are, are, um, much, much longer. They're actually, you know, it's opposite of sprinting on land. Uh, the faster you're going, the longer your contact times, the closer to acceleration you are, the shorter your contact times. Um, that being said, the acceleration pattern in hockey, the first, they call it the first 10 meters is very similar to land-based sprinting with the really the only exception is is an external rotation moment at the foot um at the lower leg to you know essentially be able to create friction on the ice but if you if you look at the joint angles at the hip and the knee uh and you know the torso those first you know five strides actually are very very similar kinematically to land-based sprinting um and the ground contact times are actually really really similar similar so the way that you might use resistance sprinting on land to improve acceleration is actually really, really similar to what we would do on the ice. Um, anything beyond that starts to change a lot. And that's where we don't do, I would say with the 1080, we don't do much that's longer than that anyways. But if we were going to do that, um, we that's where the variable resistance may come into play. And we would start to alter that. But um, in reality, most of what we do is, five to 10 meters, um, in distance, um, in, you know, as a general, uh, framework, we do think about sort of, um, especially in the off season when we're doing, uh, more of it, uh, we, we think about, uh, that, uh, velocity decrement. So we're, we're typically looking at trying to work around sort of peak power, but based on our, based on our profile, we might have guys a little bit more on the force end of the spectrum. So potentially heavier loads and more than, you know, 50% decrement. And then we might have guys lighter loads more on the, the velocity side and, and under that. But as a rule of thumb, we're usually shooting to be 
around that 50% velocity or time decrement if you're using sort of splits. Um, that's the general structure. The reality is, especially, uh, I guess I'll talk in season and off season. In season, um, we try to uh, microdose, we try to microdose all of our training, I guess, but our resisted sprinting on ice is very microdose, meaning um, our goal is to get, you know, two reps, two to three reps, one to two times a week uh, prior to practice. Um, and for most players, it's a pretty standard load. We, we don't typically go over about 10 kilograms um, on the 1080. Ideal, like the kind of perfect 50% load is probably for most guys is closer to 15 to 17. But from a logistical and practical perspective, um, we don't get there. So we get enough of what we think we're trying to get um, around somewhere between seven and 10 usually. Um, but literally what we do is, and we did it today, we had a, we typically will have a skill session prior to practice where on one, we have three sheets of ice at our training facility. And one of them will be set up a half an hour before practice with our skill coach out there. Um, and it's, it's stations and we'll have the 1080, 1080 on the bench, basically with the door open. Um, and guys will come over and just clip into the belt and we'll have a load on there and they'll do again, two to three, uh, 10 meter sprints basically, and pop the belt off and next guy will go and we just cycle through guys. So that's the general framework in the off season. We're a little bit more detailed. Again, we look at the, we, we profile guys and we see, you know, are you a little bit more on the force need force? Are you a little bit more on the need velocity? Um, and we'll progress guys, you know, linear periodization essentially over the course of the summer and even get occasionally get some guys into assisted sprinting right at the, at the very end. If they're a guy that um, basically like needs more velocity uh, in their stride, um, we'll actually sort of progress guys all the way into that where they're doing short, you know, towing basically. I was just going to ask what the, what the potential use of an assisted sprint might be, but I would guess if it's probably going to be like an assisted short sprint as opposed to you're probably not going to do like a 30 meter long assisted skate no we i we haven't gotten there i mean in theory maybe but theory and practice are two different things and uh the the, the reality is um i don't know that logistically how well that would work and again you know when you work in pro sports like you need some level of caution because at the end of the day we're working with guys that's their that's their livelihood so if I do something that I'm really excited about and something stupid happens, like A, I get fired and B, I might've messed up his career. So we try not to do that too much. Now talking about within the speed realm and then also like back to some of the other KPIs that you use. <clears throat> one question that I'm always curious about asking people that have specific KPIs that they use is how do you de determine those thresholds for certain tests that you do like how do you determine velocities you want guys to hit or whatever type of strength measurements you use how do you determine that okay they're good or they're too weak or they're too slow how do you go about doing that um yes yeah, another great question uh i've the way that i've done it i've tried to work backwards from you know uh, a quote-unquote ideal model so i look i've looked at uh, especially if we want to talk about the speed stuff like okay over the course of my career um you know, I'll, I'll look at my fastest players um, and I'll say, I'll, I'll try to profile them and say, okay, um, you know, how strong, you know, we, we would do rear foot elevated, rear foot elevated split squat as our primary lower body sort of max strength exercise. So how strong were our fastest players? Um, how high did our fastest players jump? How much power and force did our fastest players produce on the force plates? And there's always outliers that don't make any sense, but you look at the bulk of those and, and that starts to frame, you know, what's good and what's bad, what's strong enough and what's, you know, not strong enough. Um, and so that's sort of the starting process um, as far as identifying what some of those underlying key performance indicator, the, the, the underlying metrics that feed into the key performance indicators are. So those are how, that's how we've sort of developed some of our thresholds of, you know, okay, what is fast? Like what is, what is a fast five meter sprint, um, you know, on the ice from a, from a standing stop uh, or a dead stop. Um, and we've been able to now again, um, been able to look at that over four or five years, plus some stuff 
in college. And, and so now we have a pretty good idea. Okay. Like this is fast. This is okay. This is really bad. Um, and then we, we sort of, again, sort of backtrack and sort of reverse engineer that to say, you know, most of our guys produce that are fast produce this much power per, you know, watt per kilogram on the force plates. So if you're not fast and you don't produce that much power, then we probably need to work in that area or at least take the next step and go, well, why don't you produce that much power? Maybe it's, you don't produce enough force or maybe it, you know, whatever it is. And then again, that gets into how do you, how do we individualize training within the team setting is those nuances of, okay, um, we have double leg, you know, double leg jumping today in our program. Okay. You guys, you need to work on stretch shortening cycle. So your true plyometric, you don't produce enough force. So your box jump with a vest um, or trap bar jump or, you know, whatever that might be, but that's how we start to parse those things off um, to try to, again, improve those sort of that low hanging fruit with, with each guy. It sounds like from this conversation that you use speed and being fast as kind of like your, your main pillar. Is that based off of what you hold true as, potentially like the the pinnacle of performance or is that based off like the playing style that the coaching staff wants to play with or maybe both I don't know yes yes okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's definitely both it's definitely both I mean I, I I'm certainly you know biased towards believing that speed um, is really really important in in most team sports but certainly in, in hockey um, you know it's not a um, hockey is a very very fast sport and maybe the fastest team sport are players skate 23, 24, occasionally 25 miles an hour. Um, it, the game has gotten faster and faster over time because of rule changes and training and things like that. Um, and our organization uh, and our coaching staff um, believe in playing fast, in being fast. Like that's a, it's an organizational directive um, to, to get fast players play a fast style of play, develop players to be fast or stay fast. So it's all, it's all of those things combined for sure. Um, I, I want to be mindful of your time, Devin. And, uh, um, but I want to make, I do want to make sure I hit this one because I'm always interested in, um, I'm always interested in this question um, with, with all coaches, um, especially working around sports science. But as you, maybe at the end of season, um, as you have more time, what are some of the rabbit holes that you really want to dive down um, once sports science wise, once you start to have a little more time, maybe after season's over, or maybe you have time in season to, to dive a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think again, it, probably speed type stuff. That's um, it, those are rabbit holes that I'm, I've been going down for a long time that I I'm always going down. I'm always curious about, um, you know, one of the things that, that has shaped some of what we've done this season. Um, that was a rabbit hole from last season was looking at uh, speeds in games. So the, um, the league, the NHL uses a system called SMT um, and it's, it's public information. There's a public website. I think it's called NHLedge.com or something. You can see how fast players, how fast teams skate. Um, and everybody gets that. It's if you go to a game, speeds get posted up on the on the big screen um but with that information you're able to see or I, we're able to see okay uh how fast on average were our peak velocities in games and last year i was able to look at that and say and see how fast we were how fast we were relative to other teams um where and when we potentially slowed down and then start to think about well why is that and so as sort of a, a side project and something that's turned into something that we do here um, in practices uh, aside from like the 1080 stuff is we actually try to do some max velocity work in practices because again at my belief um, again sort of Charlie Francis stuff uh, to go way back if you're not um, touching over 90% of max velocity every you know call it a week four days plus or minus, you know, depending on what you look at, if you're not sort of touching those thresholds, then potentially um, you're losing some of those qualities in season. And by the end of the season, you may not be as fast. If you don't use it, you lose it. Right. So looking at our information from last year, 
was able to see a point in the season where we tended to, as a group, not necessarily individually all the time, but as a group tended to blow down a little bit in games and also was able to look at then using catapult, how fast were we going in practices and decided that we weren't touching those thresholds enough or believe that we're, we weren't touching them enough. And that if we instituted some level of high velocity skating in practices that, you know, the theory would be, we're able to maintain our, our peak speeds longer in season. Um, so that's a rabbit hole that I've gone down that now we're sort of in the experiment to see if, okay, we had the theory, we had the, we had the data, we had the theory. Now we're instituting, you know, the, the, the experiment, what's going to happen at the end of the season? You know, are we going to see a different trend than we did from last season? And is that trend going to be different from other teams? Cause again, it's all public information. So we can see all of that. Um, so those are some of the things that I guess those are the rabbit holes, um, that we're kind of diving into at this point. That's, that's super interesting. How, how long does it take a hockey player in the NHL to get to 90% plus from a standstill? Like how many, you don't have that much space on a rink. No. And, and, and that's why honestly, so it's kind of an interesting concept because the reality is almost. You're not you going from never, standstill probably. Yeah. You're not going from standstill, yeah. but you also, you rarely see max velocity in games because of that. Like it, I would say it's probably 30 to 40 meters of uninterrupted linear space, um, which is why you don't see it in games. Cause you don't, you almost never get that. Um, and it has to be very like intentful. Like you have to be trying to get to that. Like when we do our 40 meter sprints, um, we actually do, <clears throat> we do forties, uh, but we also do what we call a hot lap where you basically, you, you sort of start at the red line at center ice and you circle below the, the net and you get to cross over uh, in hockey, you can facilitate a lot of power and speed with the crossover stride versus just linear. So we basically come around a corner guys, you know, kind of get on their horse and then it's max speed through the blue line and we time them through the blue line. And that's where we get our, our absolute max velocity speed. So that certainly never happens in a game. Um, but it's, it's at minimum, it's 40 meters, which is close to the length of the rink. Um, so you don't see it in games, but, my belief is that um, training max velocity, touching max velocity um, will improve, will A, help you maintain where you're at. Um, and if you can raise that ceiling a little bit, then you can play, you know, if the game is mostly played at 18 miles an hour and you can skate 20, but another guy can skate 22, like he has a lot more buffer than you have. So if we can raise that a little bit, even though you're not using 22 all the time, that's kind of the goal. And then, you know, there's, there's some, some thought process around max velocity, actually improving uh, acceleration ability to some degree. And I also think I believe in sort of the sprinting is a vaccine idea in that, um, you know, exposing those tissues to those stressors um, routinely allows adaptation of that if you don't ever do it and then once in a while you have to hit those speeds that's where i think you run into problems you're preaching to the choir with all the speed stuff because it's something that me and mike love and we love talking about and it's it's really interesting to hear from just a slightly different perspective of on the ice because i've never worked in hockey i know mike's been around hockey probably a little bit longer than i have or a little bit more than i have but it's it's really interesting to hear that perspective from a from a speed lens but um, let's, let's hit our last question that we hit every guest with, and then, uh, and then we'll get you out of here. So what is something that you do or think that you think a majority of the field would disagree with? This is a super hard question. I was really trying to think about this. I, I don't think I'm controversial in any way. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so I, I, I struggle with this. Um, you know, I guess I could, depending on which corner of the field you kind of sit in. Like I'm, I'm a big unilateral lower body person. Um, I, I believe strongly in that stuff. Um, obviously I think speed is really, really important. I, I guess I would, I would maybe say, um, I think strong enough is lower than most people think it is to be a, a team sport athlete. I certainly, I certainly, um, am less 
biased towards developing really high levels of max strength than I used to be. Um, and I, I've not seen that be a problem. I, it's, I, th I think strength is very important, but I just think like strong enough for the things that we're trying to make better is probably less than I, I, than maybe a lot of people think it is, or certainly than I thought it was. I like it. I like it. I don't know if I, I'm probably not the, uh, the majority of people because I probably agree with that. So maybe yeah, maybe that wasn't a hot enough take then, but I, I totally agree with that. So I'm uh, I'm waiting for somebody to, to like I feel like a lot of our guests maybe recently have said things that I'm like, yes. So maybe I don't know. I'm waiting for somebody that says something that's just like completely opposite of what I think. But no, I I love that yeah. answer. I think it it encompasses kind of where the field is going at this point. But um this has been awesome. This is yeah. hit man, I've so many notes that I took down and I think that we hit a lot of areas that at least I'm, and I know Mike is very passionate about. So thank you so much for your time, especially during a busy season and, and about to leave on a big road yeah. trip. But um, real quick, if, if people wanted to read more about you, read some of your work, potentially reach out to you or, or see some of uh, what you do, where could they find you at? Yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, like the rest of the world. Um, at D McConnell 29 for both of those. Um, Twitter's probably a little bit more S and C sports science. Instagram's maybe a little bit more my kids and my dog, but a little bit of both over there. Um, LinkedIn. Um, you can shoot me an email um, at D McConnell 29 at Gmail. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago or co-wrote a book a few years ago called intent, a practical approach to sports science. Um, if you're interested in, in any of that, it was sort of a um, how to how to create systems regardless of kind of budget level. So, you know, whether you have a, a force plate or a jump mat or, a, a, you know, whatever, um, how to kind of start to do some of that stuff. So if you're interested in that stuff, that's out there, too. You can get that on Amazon. Thank you guys for listening to the episode. Find us on social media at MTN underscore perform. And another shout out to our episode sponsor, Lumen Sports. To find out more about Lumen or to download a free demo, head to lumensports.com or head to the show notes. See you guys next week.